Welcome to Ariana Answers. I'm Dr. Ariana Brandolini, a clinical psychologist who lives in New York City. Every week, I answer a life question submitted by a listener like you. In the third season of my podcast, I dive deep into cognitive distortions, also known as negative thought patterns. Our cognitive distortions have a significant impact on our mental health. We have the ability to rewire our brains by getting to the root cause of these negative thinking habits and instead build patterns of thinking that create joy. Each episode will have two parts, one where I break down the distortion and the other where I give you an exercise to help you overcome. Would you like your question answered? Head over to the description of this video to submit. Now, let's jump into this week's episode. Dear Dr. Ariana, I've been married for two years and my husband and I have a great marriage. A large reason for this is my husband is an amazing guy. Great career, has friends, nurturing, kind, and would make a great father. He's also honest, has integrity, and I've only known him to be completely trustworthy. But recently, I can't shake the feeling that he's interested in other women. If he looks too long in the direction of someone else or doesn't come home right away after work, my alarms go off. I've even gone so far as to go through his phone and emails, but never find anything. Understandably, he's hurt and exasperated at my suspicion. I've been betrayed before, and my husband isn't anything like any of my exes. My behavior is starting to affect our connection, but when the feelings strike, I feel overwhelmed and find it very hard to control myself. Please help. We are emotional beings. Emotions are a gift. They help us make good decisions, determine what we want, guide us in our goals and in our values. But sometimes we become so driven by our emotions that they take over. As I often tell my patients, feelings are like children. You don't want them driving your car because they will crash it. You don't want to shove them in the trunk because that's dangerous. You want them in the back seat where they can be seen and heard, but they're not in control of anything. Emotional reasoning is a cognitive distortion where we allow our emotions to inform our reality. Namely, I feel it, so it must be true. Examples of this are, I feel so lonely, so therefore no one cares about me. Or I feel depressed, so my marriage isn't working out or I feel fat, so I must be, even if your weight hasn't changed since yesterday. When we operate in emotional reasoning a lot, it reinforces it because we act out of emotion and we feed it so it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's take the example of I feel lonely, so therefore no one likes me or cares about me. If you believe your feelings, you are more likely to isolate and not reach out to people. So you'll have less interactions and you might be unresponsive. And so people will stop reaching out because you've kind of disappeared, making you feel even lonelier and more convinced that no one likes you. We're all guilty of emotional reasoning, but it's seen in mental health issues in particular like anxiety and depression. Some of the symptoms of depression are feelings of worthlessness and guilt and shame. Because these feelings are so strong, people who deal with depression will often believe that they're absolutely true. 
despite often having loved ones who adore them, them being good people, and, then, and them having achieved awesome things. But if you take these feelings as facts, it can be nearly impossible to reason your way out of them. If we've been through trauma, emotional reasoning can show up in things like, because something bad happened to me, I must be bad. Because I feel bad, I must have done something bad. This cognitive distortion is often seen with those who don't have a healthy relationship to their emotions, which is so many of us, frankly. It can come from a history of emotion dysregulation, meaning that we don't know how to regulate and manage our emotions very well. So we inadvertently feed them and allow them to dominate our choices and our thinking. Do you find this information helpful? Is there a certain topic you'd like us to cover? Leave us a comment and review about what you'd like to hear. We might have learned this from highly emotional caregivers who had big emotions and acted out of that place. Or if we had very repressed emotional homes that didn't display much affect. Or our emotions were invalidated and shut down when we were kids. Our parents and caregivers are our first models on how to regulate, how to relate, and how to manage your emotional states. I'm sure you've either seen or experienced a mom soothing a crying toddler and saying things like, yes, I know you're tired, or yes, I know you're really disappointed that you have to leave the party. And then either distracting the kid or providing comfort until they learn how to regulate themselves. Caregivers are supposed to give us words to our emotions and teach us how to self-soothe and put boundaries around them. If we haven't had good teachers, we might still feel like a toddler having confusing meltdowns when our emotions take over. But it's never too late to learn this stuff, even as adults. Oftentimes, when we're engaging in emotional reasoning, we disregard or dismiss any evidence to the contrary, in favor of the assumed truth of our feelings. They can feel so strong and overwhelming, it's hard to see any other way. Let's take my fear of cockroaches, for example. Intellectually, I know cockroaches are not dangerous. As far as I know, they are not aggressive. No one has died from being attacked by a cockroach. I don't even think they can bite you. But when I see one near me, I don't care what logical facts or arguments you have for me. All I fear is fear. That thing is going to crawl on me or kill me. I don't know. Get it away from me. In reality, we've coexisted with cockroaches for a long time. And I've seen plenty here in New York City, including in my bathroom. Uh, and I've survived. So I know this is a thinking error that just makes life miserable every time I encounter a cockroach. This is called an amygdala hijack. An amygdala hijack is an immediate and intense emotional reaction that's out of proportion to the situation, like when someone loses it or seriously overreacts to something or someone. That's because the amygdala is a structure in your brain that's designed to respond very quickly to threats and protect us from danger. The problem is that this mechanism, if overactive, can actually interfere with our everyday functioning since we live in a modern world where threats are often more subtle than a predator running after us. As we're processing the world around us, that sensory information travels up the brainstem 
which is what's called your reptilian brain. It runs from the top of your spine to the base of your skull. And first that information heads to the thalamus, which is in your midbrain. The thalamus acts as your brain's relay station. The thalamus relays the information to the neocortex, which is in the frontal lobe of your brain. And from there, it is sent to the amygdala, back down to the midbrain, which is your emotional brain. And it produces the appropriate emotional response for whatever circumstance you're dealing with. But when we're faced with a threatening situation, the thalamus sends sensory information to both the amygdala and the neocortex at the same time. If the amygdala senses even a whiff of danger, it makes a split-second decision to initiate the fight-or-flight response before the neocortex or your thinking brain has time to overrule it. This cascade of events triggers the release of stress hormones like epinephrine, which is known as adrenaline, and cortisol, which is the stress hormone. This cascade of events triggers the release of stress hormones, including epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, and cortisol. These hormones prepare your body to fight or flee by increasing your heart rate, elevating your blood pressure, boosting your energy levels. And it can also initiate what is called a freeze response, where you feel unable to communicate or react effectively and essentially feel frozen. Your amygdala is the storehouse of all your emotional memories. It functions like a library, storing the emotional reactions that occur each time you build a thought. So your amygdala assesses danger in situations based on information you've learned from past experience. That's why when you have a negative or highly emotional experience in a certain place or in reaction to something, the next time you're in a similar physical situation, you'll find your body automatically kicks into gear and you'll experience all the same physical sensations of fight or flight because your brain quote unquote remembers that's a dangerous place and it wants to prepare you. And so people with panic disorder often experience this. When they've had a panic attack in a certain place or in a certain situation, their body remembers it. And so when they're in that situation or revisit that place, they might kick into a panic attack again. Do you feel like your thoughts are often spiraling and hard to control? Is it hard to stop thinking negatively about your life? I get it. And I've helped many people like you recognize and overcome negative thought patterns, which allowed them to thrive. To help you in this process, I've developed a program called Power Thoughts. This program helps you understand how thoughts physically change your brain and then equips you with the tools to rewire your thinking. To find out more, click the link in my podcast description. So going back to my cockroach example. Although I've never had a quote-unquote bad experience with a cockroach, my amygdala remembers that the, I felt intense fear the last time I saw one. And so we'll assume, oh, this is a bad thing. I must avoid it because you reacted in fear last time. Therefore, you will react in fear again. It becomes a learned response even if it makes no logical sense. Even though most of the threats we face today aren't physical but more symbolic, our brains are still wired to deal with physical threats to our survival that require quick responses like fight, flight, or freeze. So our brain will often react like it's being physically threatened when the threats are actually more interpersonal or about our income stability or our social standing.
Chronic stress and mental health conditions can play a certain role in the overactivity of our fear circuits in the brain, which can result in greater chances of amygdala hijacking. People with PTSD, for example, show far greater amygdala activation and so have increased emotional responses, including fear and anxiety. Studies show that people with anxiety disorders like social anxiety and panic disorder might also respond more strongly in their amygdala. Even without a diagnosis of PTSD or an anxiety disorder, chronic stress can actually lead to an overactive fear and anxiety circuit in your brain, which also reduces the functioning of other areas of the brain that actually help with inhibition of fear. So you're more likely to feel that feeling. All of this means that chronic stress can trigger more frequent amygdala hijacks and even problems with short-term memory, which is why it's important to work on understanding and taking charge of your emotional reactions, as well as working on your lifestyle to make it healthier and less stressful. I think talking about emotional reasoning is more important than ever. We are in an extremely charged emotional time. We are so polarized as a society and emotionally overcharged that many issues and topics and conversations are firing those emotional parts of our brain. If I say the words COVID vaccines, Black Lives Matter, build the wall, climate change, some of you listening will notice your emotional brain starting to kick in. You want to know what I'm going to say next because this is your brain readying for a fight if I have a different opinion than you on any of these emotionally charged subjects. Because of the emotions that these topics carry, we in society today are responding to each other as if we are threats. Sometimes it looks like yelling, being aggressive, blocking people out, or giving them the silent treatment. It doesn't matter how much logic or reason or information we give each other about these topics. We likely will not listen or be open to new information because we're not responding with our thinking brain, the neocortex, but with our amygdala, our emotion brain. The thing is, advertisers, those in marketing, politicians, the media, all of these individuals and entities know how to manipulate our emotional brains. They know what to do so that we don't process information with logic. They know that if they can light up the emotional centers in our brain, people won't even think, they will just react. The good news is we can learn how to override the emotional brain, learn how to engage the neocortex, even if we're feeling triggered and activated. The key is to take a beat, manage our emotional state before we act or react, no matter what that emotion might be. The more we practice regulating ourselves when we feel our emotional mind take over, the better we will get at allowing emotion, emotions to move through us, take it as information, but then engage our neocortex or our wise mind to determine how we want to respond. This will help us move towards each other and bring people together. The way that we do this is through mindfulness. Mindfulness is bringing your full attention and awareness to a current experience without judging it. 
Mindfulness increases your awareness of your thoughts and feelings because you're able to actually take a pause and observe yourself at any given moment. It helps reduce emotional reasoning because it takes you out of the swirl of your feelings and brings you into your higher mind and into what's actually happening in your body. From there, you're able to look at this emotional part of yourself and observe your reactions with curiosity rather than feeling dominated by them. When we engage curiosity and observation of our emotional experience, we're able to look at our kids in the backseat of our car and evaluate why are they acting up? What is it that they actually need in this moment? Going back to that loneliness example, say you're using mindfulness and you're able to name the feeling that you're going through, namely loneliness. And instead of perpetuating an unhealthy cycle of avoidance and isolation, you'll be able to choose the healthy thing to do, namely reach out to someone. If I'm berating myself because I feel fat today, once I've named what's going on and I'm able to see what emotional reasoning is doing to my perception of my body, I'm able to be more conscious and speak to it with kindness. We're now going to do a brief exercise that really helps when we're in the midst of heightened emotional reasoning. It's a practice based in neuroscience to help reduce anxiety and emotional reactivity by using soothing touch while directing our attention and intention. This practice that we're about to do can also be described as CPR for the amygdala or the emotional centers of the brain. So begin by sitting in a comfortable position in a quiet space where you won't be disturbed for a few minutes. I want you to begin by bringing your palms to heart center in a position like you're praying. Now, slowly rub the palms of your hands together, up and down, in gentle rhythmic strokes. Or you can hold your arms horizontally and stroke your palms together like you're petting a cat or a dog. Keep going, switching between the two palm strokes or staying with the one that is most comfortable to you. Next, I want you to cross your arms in an X shape and use your hands to stroke your upper arms downwards from shoulder to elbow and repeat. Try and find a pressure and a pace that is most soothing for you. All right, very good. Lastly, place your fingertips at the center of your forehead Stroke across your forehead and down the sides of your face in a heart shape. Keep repeating that. Some find it soothing to go up into the hairline. Others prefer bare skin near the eyebrows. And even sometimes going down along the sides of your nose and across your cheeks. Just keep repeating at a pressure and a pace 
that feels soothing to you and your body. This touch activates delta waves in your brain, which are the slowest recorded brain waves in human beings. And they're found most often in infants and young children and are associated with the deepest levels of relaxation and restorative healing sleep. And this kind of touch also sends signals via skin receptors and nerves that are specialized to recognize only soothing touch. And these nerves are hardwired into the emotional centers of the brain. They send signals that convey safety, connection, and love. So throughout this exercise, I want you to alternate between these soothing touches as it feels good to you. Rubbing your palms, stroking your upper arms, or your face. You might want to close your eyes to focus in on the sound of my voice. So as you keep going with the soothing touch, let's begin by taking a few breaths in and out. Again, in and out. Just settle into easy breathing as you continue the self-soothing touch. Now imagine that in front of you is a beautiful staircase. At the end of the staircase is a comforting and relaxing space. It could be a beach with gently crashing waves or a field, a living room or a beautiful sunset. Notice that there are 10 steps to the staircase. And with each step, you are getting closer to that beautiful space. Continue easy and comfortable breathing with me and your soothing touch as you imagine yourself slowly taking each step. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. As you get to the comforting, relaxing space that you imagined in your mind, I want you to name four things that you can see. Now, three things that you can hear. Now, two things that you can feel. The sun on your face or the sand between your toes. And finally, what is one thing that you can smell in this beautiful place? As you continue the healing touch sequence, we're going to transition into a quick and easy brain game. 
So to start, I want you to name two places in the world, it can be a city, town, state, or country, that start with a letter A. And take a gentle pause because your brain might be getting slower, which is a sign of success because your brain is entering into a calmer state. Now find two places in the world that start with the letter B. And finally, think of two places in the world that start with the letter C. Now, as we get to the end of our amygdala CPR, let's focus on the breath. I'm going to count a gentle inhale for five, two, three, four, five, and a gentle exhale down from six, five, four, three, two, one. Again, inhale for five, two, three, four, five, and exhale down from six, five, four, three, two, and one. Great job. Whenever you find yourself in an amygdala hijack or engaging in intense emotional reasoning, come back to this exercise to regulate your brain, body, and your emotions back to baseline.